How is everybody? Good, good. Okay, that video never gets old. I bet I've seen that video 30 times and I still love it. And I think the guy coming out of the cave kind of looks like Josh Brooker. So, uh, um, <laughs> old guy living in a cave. Um, anyways, so we're in the book of James. Uh, we're in the second week of this. If you have never heard the book of James, this may be the most straightforward, blunt book of the entire Bible. I mean, it is just very uh, simple. It's very straightforward. It's very easy to comprehend. There's not anything overtly complicated in the book of James. Um, and I think, the reason why, I think the reason why people like it, a lot of people like it, is because it's so straightforward. And then I think there's a lot of people who probably don't like it because it's so straightforward. Um, I'll tell you a fun story. This happened <laughs> a couple of years ago. I thought of this last night before the five. Uh, I'd forgotten about this until um, something had, had stirred my memory and I remember this. Um, so sometimes when I teach, I can come off uh, strong, right? Especially in a book like James, I can come off a little, uh, a little intense. And, um, and so one time, a couple of years ago, we were still on the other side and we were in between the nine and the 11. And I just wanted to go out and get some fresh air for a minute. It was a nice day outside or something. And so uh, after the nine, I had went out right as the 11 o'clock service started. I went outside and, you know, most people were already in the church. And there was one guy outside and he was smoking a cigarette before he was going to come into the, into the service. And I walked out and we just struck up a conversation. I was like, oh, hey, man, how you doing? You know, first time at the church, you've been here before? And he goes, yeah, that's my first time. He goes, you know, I've heard some good things about the church. But he goes, quite frankly, I've heard some people say that the, uh, the pastor's a real jerk. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I had the microphone thing hanging off my shirt and I was just like, well, maybe you should get to know him. I, he's probably a very pleasant guy to talk to, you know, like. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so we had this conversation. He threw down a cigarette and he goes, well, you know, I'll give him a shot, you know. And, and I was like, okay, you know. And he walked in and I just kind of sat there for a second, bewildered. And then I went in and I wish I could have seen his face when, <laughs> when I got up there to, to speak. <laughs> Uh, not sure I ever saw that guy again, um, but uh, hopefully he found a good church where the, the pastor's not a jerk. So anyways, <laughs> so we've been in the book of James now. This is our second week. If you were here last week, there was a lot of great takeaways from, from chapter one of James. By the way, this is in the New Testament. It's right after the book of Hebrews, if you have your Bible. It's uh, towards the end of your Bible. If you don't, there's a notes handout that you should have got when you walked in and you have the version app, everything's on there as well, so it's pretty easy to follow along, okay? But last week, the biggest takeaway that I personally pulled out of chapter one is we have to know who we are. And if we are a Christian, if we find our identity in Jesus, there's a certain standard by which we are called to live. And that's essentially what James is about, right? And so that's what we talked about a little bit in chapter one. Chapter two is this, and guys, this is gonna be the most straightforward, simple lesson you've heard in a long time, nothing overtly complicated today. But the main objective today is this idea, that it is practical holiness. That's a very churchy word. All that means is striving to be, to, be, to live and to act and to think as much like God as possible, right? That it's practical holiness. That is our evidence of our faith, right? It's not what we say, it's what we do that defines us, okay? And that's our evidence. That's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. This is the most hipster slide I've ever created. There it is. So um, someone told me one time that we have the most hipster church you know, in the city, and I'm like, well, I'm not very hipster at all. I wear like fake chacos, you know? So I'm, I'm very, very not cool. So uh, anyways, 
Glad you guys are here. I'm gonna be straightforward. Uh, uh, I'll probably get a little passionate during this today, and, and I, I don't do that to offend anyone. I don't do that to, to somehow come off as superior or like I know everything, um, but chapter two holds some things in it that I very personally feel very strongly about, and that may come out a little bit today. So, so um, show me some grace today, and if you're new, Again, I am a pleasant person to talk to if you ever get a chance to meet me. So, um, Anyways, let me pray and we'll dive into this. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We just want to tell you thank you, Lord. You've been so good to us, God. Thank you for the beautiful weather yesterday and, and uh, thank you, Lord, for the sunshine today. And God, we pray that you keep your hand on us, Lord. Let us be teachable today. Open up our ears and our eyes, Lord. Let us approach your word objectively and uh, with a desire to learn. God, we pray that you bless every church in our community. Pray, God, that you bless all the nonprofits in our community, especially the ones in close proximity to us, uh, uh, Cold Patrol and Stepping Stones and Journey Home, and pray that you bless them, God, and, and what they're doing for our city. And God, just keep your hand on us today. Lord, I, I hope that every word that comes out of my mouth honors you and is from your heart, God. And Lord, let me be gracious, and, um, and Lord, because you've been so gracious with me. We thank you. We love you, we lift you up in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in chapter two of James. You should have a notes handout. I'm gonna read a little bit and I'll do my best to break it down. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For example, a man comes into your meeting, church meeting, wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, yet you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he's promised to all those that love him? Yet you dishonored that poor man don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at your baptism? Now, here's the first very practical point that James is going to make today, is that favoritism is inconsistent with Christianity. And the example that James uses is, he says, let's say two men walk into church, right? One has the appearance of being very, very wealthy, nice rings, nice clothes. The other one walks in and has the appearance of being poor. We are not, as Christians, to treat them differently because of their money, their power, or their social standing. Now, here's something, what's, here's something very interesting about humanity. We haven't changed much in the last 2,000 years. I would argue we haven't changed much since our inception, right? We still struggle with the same things. It's just different ways of doing it. So in James' time, what a lot of people would do is they would have this appearance when they, listen, when they would go to church, they would rent fine rings and rent fine clothes, show up at church in the hopes that everyone would think they were rich. This was the culture in James' time. It's funny, again, I say people haven't changed much. Um, I was driving, uh, and, and this is gonna sound judgmental of me, but I see it all the time. There's a Starbucks that I go to on Memorial. That's, that's kind of my Starbucks. It's close to my house. And there's a, uh, one of those advanced check places right next door to it, right? And so all the time when I'm going to Starbucks, I always pass this place. And the nicest cars in Murfreesboro were typically at this advanced financial place, right? And the other day I drove by and there was a woman in a brand new BMW convertible, top down, dressed to the nines, getting out because I guess she needed an advance 
on our check. And so, but I'm like, this is, this is what our culture has done, right? We have this appearance of wealth and health and success, but we're really struggling, right? And we don't wanna be honest about that. Same thing was going on in James' time. And so James tells the Christians that they should not give preferential seating or special favor to people simply because they may be prominent. Um, not only did James say this, this had actually been a law for hundreds and hundreds of years that we were not to treat people like this, but they had kind of neglected this law that actually Moses, their kind of hero of their faith, wrote a long time ago. So in this example, not only does the greeter, like your hospitality person, right, not only do they show favoritism to the rich, but they completely neglect the concerns of the poor. And so they do two very distinct wrongs. And so what you and I have to do as Christians, if you're a Christian in here, is we have to ask ourselves, have we become discriminatory? Now, if we have, that's a problem because according to the Bible, there is no class structure in Christianity. We are all heirs to the kingdom of God, right? There is no class structure. But it seems like we haven't completely learned from that yet. So Jesus not only died for the poor and for the rich, he died for people of all colors and for all social statuses. So God wants you and I to love the poor like he loves the poor and know that regardless of how little we have in this life, all of us are the same, we all have the same, uh, we're all entitled, if you will, to the same paradise if we follow Jesus. That we all have the same reward in heaven if we follow Jesus, regardless of what our social status is on earth. Now, here's where I'm gonna get offensive, and I'm not trying to be, but we have to define poor. And here's what's interesting. Uh, a homeless gentleman that comes to this church every single week, I actually saw him this morning, he was in here last night, he loved this slide. We have to define poor. We often say, I've said it, I'm poor, right? I'm poor because I only have two cars, one television, and a house that's you know, not as big as I would like sometimes, so I'm poor. That's how we, you know, we say these kind of things jokingly sometimes about ourselves. So let's look at some facts. In Forbes, they did a study, and America's poorest people are about the equivalent of India's wealthiest people. We live, comparatively to the rest of the world, much better, right? Even the poorest in our community, we have programs and we have people that reach out, so we live better, even at the lowest level, in the United States than most places in the world. Now, do we have poverty in the United States? Of course we do. As we're speaking right now, our church is feeding over about 150 to 200 people who live in poverty. We've been doing it every single weekend for eight years now, so we know that that's going on. But we have to define who the poor is. The poor are people who are helpless, defenseless, and doing everything they can to get out of that situation, but they cannot achieve that without someone's help. That's what being poor truly is, okay? And so there's a part of the scripture, there's lots of scripture, but this is one of them, that we don't like to talk about. And in our culture, we just kind of turn a blind eye to the scripture. The scripture says that if someone does not want to get better, if they do not want to work, that they shouldn't be allowed to eat. Now this is very offensive, but I think the Bible supports this claim. The church is not called to enable people to have, that have no desire to follow the Lord or to wanna to make changes in their lives. We are not called to help those individuals. So the poor that James is referring to is the helpless and the downtrodden, not the lazy and entitled. So, 
James looks at them and he says, so you guys don't like the poor, but you love the rich. How has your favoritism helped you? James points out the irony that the church has gone out of their way to honor some of the greedy and powerful people that actually oppress them, that actually teach things contrary to what they believed, that would even blaspheme Jesus's name. Guys, we still do this. Christians are still enamored with pop culture and people who are rich and successful and powerful because we envy them. And because we envy them so much, we're willing to compromise our belief. We're willing to let people talk bad about our faith and we're willing to be abused. And that is not what God wants for you. That does not honor God when we let people abuse ourselves, when we let people blaspheme the name of Jesus. This is not honoring to God. And so what I see over and over and over again in the Bible is this word balance. I see so much practical, simple balance in the Bible. So James is saying this, when it comes to the poor, we are to honor and love the poor by not judging them or treating them differently and by helping them in their time of need without enabling bad behavior. Let me tell you a story. I wrote an article for the, for the newspaper a couple of years ago and I wrote it based on a book that we teach at this church called When Helping Hurts. Now, I used to be that guy, and again, I'm just gonna go down the offensive route for a second. I used to be that guy that always gave money to panhandlers, always, especially if it was a woman, right? I would pull over, I'd, as much cash as I had on me, here, you know, do what, do what you need to do with this, be blessed, have a good day. I did that for years and years and years, and I was very judgmental towards people who did not do that. I stopped doing that about five years ago, and I'll tell you why. When this church really started getting involved with the homeless and the low-income community in this town, I started finding out that m the majority of the women that are out there holding signs that say, you know, need food, hungry, God bless, all these things, most of those women, I'd say 90% of those women who are out there are out on the street corners because they have an abusive husband or boyfriend that prostitutes them and beats the snot out of them and makes them stand on that corner. I know that because they would come to church here. I know that because I would go to the jails where their husbands and boyfriends were because of domestic assault. So every time I would see people throw money at these women, I'm like, you are paying for domestic violence. You are paying for prostitution right now. That's what you're doing. So I stopped giving money to that. Instead, we started working with Greenhouse and Cold Patrol and organizations like Stepping Stones and all these different organizations that help homeless men and women because I don't wanna enable bad behaviors. I don't wanna keep them where they are. I wanna to try to pull them up to a higher level. And I wrote an article, and you wouldn't believe the hate mail I got for that. You wouldn't believe it. And so this is what we do. We don't want to enable bad behavior. We also need to know that just because one is wealthy, it does not mean that they're bad. But we must be careful not to love or give preferential treatment to people because we hope we might get something from them. We need to be careful about that. Practically speaking, this is how we deal with the poor. This is how we deal with the rich, okay? So next part. Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whatever, or I'm sorry, for whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you commit adultery, but you do murder, you're a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy 
triumphs over judgment. So we call it the golden rule, most of us, right? Treat others as you want to be treated. James calls it the royal law. The royal law is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament. This is mentioned by Jesus himself in the New Testament. Who is our neighbor, you ask? Jesus would define your neighbor as anyone who needs your help, anyone who is in need. And in order to love our neighbor the way we're supposed to love our neighbor, we have to be full of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it's easy to get jaded and it's easy to be selfish. For all of us, it's easy to be like that. Here's the thing. A glass can only spill what it contains. So if we are not full of the Holy Spirit, right, we cannot pour love onto others the way we should. We must be filled up so we can go out and engage the community around us the way the Bible tells us to. And, and James says this, if we have not loved all kinds of people, we have sinned. You know, the Bible says that it's easy for us to love people like us, right? Even non-believers do that. That's why we have cliques and circles of like-minded people. They love what makes Christianity unique to the rest of the world is we are called not only to love people like us, we are even called to love our enemies. So not only do we love other Christians, right? Or other you know, conservative Republicans or whatever the case may be, we are called to love liberal people. We are called to love Islamic people. We are called to love atheist people. We are called to love angry people. We are called to love all kinds, all people. That's what makes us unique. And so verse 10 says that if we keep every other instruction of the Bible, every law, we keep all those perfectly, but we fail to love all people, we are in fact breaking all of God's laws. Because if you boil down God's laws, it is love God, and love other people. These are the core essentials of the Christian faith. Does that mean you agree with everyone? No, but we love them, we care for them, we want them to know Jesus Christ and to go to heaven. So righteousness is a package deal. <laughs> this is a big soapbox that I've been on in my personal life recently. When we choose to follow Jesus, we are to relent to all of Jesus's teachings, all of his ways, not just the ones we agree with or feel comfortable with all of his ways. I was very disturbed and I posted a Facebook thing, which of course garnered some you know, colorful comments from people, but there was a video I watched for a church just not far from here, right, in another town. Where in this video, there's all kinds of bad theology in their who are we video thing. But one of the things that, 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 that this person says is, our faith is not a set of doctrines that need complete agreement. Bull crap. We are to agree with all of it. We are to take the word of God in its entirety, not just bits and pieces. Our faith is not a bowling game where if we bowl a nine out of 10, we're like, that was pretty good. No, no, no. Our faith is more like a beautiful stained glass window that if one part gets broken, the whole thing shatters. We either take Jesus Christ and our faith in its entirety, or we take none of it. Jesus put it this way, you are either for me or you're not, right? You're either 100% on my team or you're not on my team. So this idea of cherry picking versus we're comfortable with and accepting those and discarding the ones we don't like. And guys, if I'm going to be honest with you for a second, I don't like all the parts of the Bible. There are parts of it where I'm like, I wish it didn't say that, but it does. And so me and my, what little humility I have, I have to humble myself to God and say, God, you're smarter than me, though I don't understand it. And I may not even agree with you on this. I have to relent to you. I have to submit to this because I know you're right. I know you're right, and that's where we need to land. And so here's the thing. We are to speak and act as those who will be judged 
by the fact that we've been given freedom. This means that when we've been liberated by Jesus, when we've been saved by Christ, when we've been enlightened, if you will, if we choose to return to go back to our sin and our slavery, this offends God, and this doesn't go unnoticed. And the sin that James is talking about in this point is the sin of favoritism and the sin of not treating other people with love and with grace. So the Bible never tells us that we're not to judge, right? Whenever people say, well, don't judge me. Well, we're we're actually called to judge, except we're called to judge righteously and we're called to make judgments with mercy. So much so that James says, if we don't show mercy to others, we will not be shown mercy ourselves. So mercy is a byproduct of the grace that God has shown us. When we've experienced God's mercy, we are less apt to prejudge people. We are less apt to be judgmental. We're more apt to make good, righteous decisions about people and what people are doing, okay? So James says mercy is greater than judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what he's actually referring to is, is that when we become into a relationship with Jesus, Jesus's mercy takes away our shame, our guilt. He takes away our impending judgment. Basically, we're not gonna go to hell is what he's saying. And when we love people, when we serve people, when we show mercy to people, we show them a glimpse of Jesus and we present the opportunity for them to also experience real mercy, real love, real freedom from Jesus Christ, okay? All right, you guys still with me? Okay, all right. (laughs) That was pretty weak, all right. (laughs) Still with me? (laughs) Thanks, that's what I I was looking for. That's, that's, That's what I was fishing for, it's good. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you don't give him what the body needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Now, if you don't know much about the book of James, the book of James almost didn't make it into the Bible. And the reason why is how James talks about faith and works. Now, James has received a ton of criticism for his, his, his writing on works. But here's the thing. James is not saying that we are saved by our works because it says in Ephesians 2.8 that only grace saves us. What he's saying is this. It's not just an intellectual statement that demonstrates our faith. It is what we do. I can tell you I'm a Christian all day long, but it's how I live that shows you I'm a Christian. So this flies in the face of Southern Christianity. And and again, I'm not trying to be offensive, but this is what it is. A verbal testimony alone is not evidence of saving faith. People all the time come up to me. They say, hey, can you pray for my cousin? Well, sure, what's going on? Well, I know they know Jesus, but they smoke crack cocaine. They like, you know, kick kittens all the time. They beat their wife. They've been in jail seven times for lying on their taxes, but I know they're saved. And I'm like, you do? 
right? You're confident in that salvation. And so I hear that all the time. Well, they gave their life to Jesus when they were 13. Well, obviously not completely, right? And so this verbal testimony is not enough. There must be action as a result of our belief. If you come into a true encounter with Jesus, a saving faith with Jesus, you're going to live differently. Your life is going to look different because there's a standard by which Christians are called to live at. There is a job description of sorts that we are called to live out. And that job description is simply this. We are to obey the teachings of the word of God. So the evidence of our faith is how we talk to each other, our work ethic, how we relate to people, our giving, our serving, our commitment, our prayer life, our studying the word of God. Simply put, we need to ask ourselves, are we visibly loving God and are we visibly loving other people? And if we aren't, there might be a problem. There might be a disconnect there. And so again, James, because he's so practical, gives us an extremely practical example. This is what he talks about. He says, let's say there's a starving man on the side of the street, right? And you say you have faith and you walk by and you see the starving man, which by the way, in James' time, there wasn't welfare, there wasn't social programs, there weren't homeless shelters, they didn't have any of that stuff. So if you were starving and homeless, you were starving and homeless, I mean completely, no help, right? And so James says, let's say you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, everyone knows it, you walk by a homeless guy who's, who's starving to death and you're just like, hey man, be blessed, and just kind of keep on walking. James says, your faith is garbage, man. Your faith doesn't mean anything. Here's the thing. First and foremost, according to the Bible, Jesus came to save sinners. So first and foremost, the number one objective over feeding the poor, over clothing the, the naked, over visiting people in prison, the first objective of Christianity is to teach the gospel. That is our first objective. But our very close second is to practically and positively impact the world around us. And here's what's odd. If we will positively and practically impact the world around us, we will have a quicker path to our first objective. <laughs> if we will love other people practically, if someone is starving and we give them some food, right? If someone is in need and we help them out, we show them the love of Christ and we open up a door for their souls to be saved. That's what we are called to do. It's in hot pink, you know it's coming, guys. So here we go. So what we live in, though, is we live in a bumper sticker society. I would even say with our faith. And so having faith without doing anything about it is dead. And it's much like whenever people put supportive stickers of different organizations all over the back of their car, but they've never contributed to the cause. You guys know these people, right? They're all over. So there's stickers all over the place. Save whales and do this. And I love whales. Like I want them to be saved physically. I don't, I don't know if they go to heaven, but all so. All these people put stickers all over their cars, but they've never given a dime to anything to help those things. Guys, let me, something that I'm bothers, bothered with is people say, well, I just want people to be aware of the problem. Anyone can be aware of a problem. It takes a real man or woman to actually engage and do something about the problem. We're a whole culture that's great at saying that's wrong. And I'm like, okay, it's wrong. What are you gonna do about it? So we're a bumper sticker society. Listen, just knowing people are starving to death does not put food in their mouth. Just knowing that Jesus is the savior of the world does not mean that people are being saved. There is a problem in North American Christian culture when there are starving children all over the world, and many of you have compassion children, and that is fantastic. It's $38 a month. 
And so when we have cable bills that are $150 a month and there are starving children in Guatemala and South America and in Africa, that if we were just to give $38 a month, we would give them health benefits and food. And if we in the prosperous nation that we are in, if we can't do that, James would say there's something wrong with your faith. Do you know the tremendous sacrifice I had to make in my life to support a compassion child? Do you, this, I mean, I really gave up a lot for this, I'll tell you. I always get a venti iced cup of coffee every single day after lunch. That's like my ritual, right? If I don't, my head hurts and like the world falls apart. So I get a venti iced cup of coffee every single day after lunch. So I felt convicted. Here's, here comes the big sacrifice, right? And I told my wife, hey, I've noticed that it's 30 cents cheaper to get a grande size. And if I give up that 30 cents a day, I can give a child health care and food and they can live. So I'm going to go from a venti to a grande. <gasps> that's, the, that's the tremendous sacrifice I had to make to make sure a little girl named Isabella that we support has health care. If we all did this, right? First world problems, right? It's only a grande cup. If we were to make these small sacrifices, look at the, the, just the enormous change we could make in the world, right? So just knowing that there's a problem does not fix the problem. We must actually do something about it. So James says, you can tell me all day long you're a Christian. Show me. Show me. James says that we can say we're Christians, but it's through our actions that we display our faith. Again, are we saved by our works? No, we are not saved by our works, but we are not saved from our works either. Because we are saved, we do amazing things. We help people. Doing good deeds is a natural byproduct of the Christian life. This is what should naturally come out of us. So James kind of like hits it home and gets very, very sassy here towards the end of this passage. James' message becomes super clear. He says, look, even the demons in hell know that Jesus is the Messiah. They used to hang out with him in heaven. And the reason why demons are not in heaven anymore is they knew who the Savior was, but they didn't do what he said. Now they're in hell. They know who he is. They don't follow his deeds, therefore they are lost. And this verse should wake us up to just know who Jesus is, is not saving faith. It is living like we know who Jesus is in everything we do. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus quoting Isaiah, who got his inspiration from Jesus to write it. That's kind of a fun circle, isn't it, right? So Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah, he said, hypocrites. He said, you honor me with your mouths, but your you, uh, you honor me with your mouths, but your hearts are far away from me. If anything wraps up modern day Christian culture, we love to say we follow Jesus, but when it comes to our actions, they just don't support that claim. Our lips are close, our hearts, not so much. Last part. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith 
without works is dead. Okay. So James look and he says, foolish person. He says, foolish man, right? But I don't want to let you women off the hook, right? <laughs> foolish person. And he is frustrated because what he's asking is this. He's saying, are you guys even willing to hear the truth? Here's our problem, guys. Our biggest problem is not the mistakes we make. Our biggest problem is, are we willing to learn from those and to make the changes to stop doing them? In other words, are we teachable? I want you to ask yourself that. Are we teachable? Are we humble enough to learn from other people? Are we humble enough to learn from the Bible? Are we humble enough to learn from God? God can work with the most broken clay, right? It's from Romans, right? Even the most broken, messed up, like, like clay that you can get your hands on. God can work with anything, but we must be humble enough to submit to his instruction. God will not work with people who are unwilling to learn from him. So James says some examples about works that, that, that were evident, that, that showed people's faith. And James uses two very different individuals, Abraham, the father of the faith, right? And then also Rahab, who was a prostitute. Okay? So he uses these two people. And he says, Abraham was justified by his willingness to give his son. This did not save him. The fact that he was going to sacrifice his son did not save him. He was saved, therefore he was obedient to what God told him to do. Abraham's faith controlled even the most intimate part of his life, his kids, right? It controlled every aspect. He was willing to give up everything to do whatever he had to do to be obedient to God. Rahab, in a very different way, demonstrated faith as well through her works. She was a prostitute, but she knew of the Jewish God, right? Of the Hebrew God. And when they come to take over Jericho, right? Like the, the bad TV show, that when they came to take over Jericho and the walls were about to be knocked down, she helped out the people of God and she was saved physically. She lived. And then she was saved spiritually. She was justified by the fact that she took action. That's in Joshua 2. And James says that these people became friends of God. <laughs> so I remember when that song was like really, really popular, right? And, and not, not a huge fan, but I remember when it was really, really popular. And I remember listening to it and I'm like, all these people would sing, I'm a friend of God. I remember. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know if they understand what that really means. Jesus said to be a friend of God. He says, you are my friends if you do what I tell you to do. Abraham and Rahab obeyed God. Therefore, they weren't only saved by God, they had a friendship level relationship with the creator of the universe. Here's the thing. We cannot claim to be friends of God, let alone be saved, unless we honor the instruction of God through his word. Amen. So whenever we say, man, God's my friend, he's only your friend if you do what he tells you to do. That's the only way we can become friends of God. So look how James ends this, very bluntly, right? Very aggressively. In Genesis 2, 7, I don't know if you guys know this about yourselves or not, but what makes you unique to all other creation is your soul. When humanity was created, after all the beautiful animals, after the trees, after this earth that, 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 is, that is so complicated and complex and beautiful, after God had created all these things, he created mankind. And it says that he breathed his breath into them giving them a soul, making them unique to all other creation. James says, without breath, we're just a corpse, right? We're dead. There's nothing to us. 
without the breath of life, without God's spirit in us, we are dead spiritually. Without literal breath in us, we are dead literally, right? So in the same way, faith without works is dead. Just like if a body has no breath in it, it's dead. If your faith has no works in it, James says, it's dead. So here's the most anticlimactic ending I could possibly give you to this lesson. It is practical holiness. It is our works that are the evidence of real faith. Again, your works do not save you, but they are evidence of the fact that you have a relationship with God. In relation to God, simple stuff, guys, but I just want to ask you, and you need to ask yourself. I can't answer this. Only you can answer this. I want to ask you, do we have a prayer life? Not just where we pray when we're broke, not just we pray when we lose somebody, not just when we pray when we want something. Is prayer a part of our life? Is it a priority? Do we make time for it? The big kick that I'm on right now is everything is contingent on our proximity to God's throne. And we get closer to God's throne based on our prayer life. Are we talking to him? Do we read the Bible? Paul told Timothy, his protege, to study the Bible to show yourself approved unto God. Listen, just posting like that Instagram pic of some fluffy scripture with a mountainscape in the background, that is not reading the Bible, right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's not studying the Bible. Studying the Bible is blocking out some time, investing in a good study Bible, right? Sitting down and actually digging in a little bit, trying to figure it out a little bit. Do we faithfully attend church? Oh, there's that preacher just trying to get his numbers up, right? I don't care if you come to this church, but you need to go to a church. Why? Because in Hebrews, it says so. It says that towards the end of time, it alludes to the fact that it's become harder and harder and harder for us to worship and hold on to the truth. There is a war right now for the truth. And that without the church, we're alone, we're incomplete. We need the body of believers. We need fellowship. We need each other. Are you here every week? Are you here? Are you worshiping? Are you getting involved in the church? Are we committed to the teachings of the word? Not just the ones that we like, not just the ones that we're comfortable with. Are we committed to the teaching and the instruction of the word of God? And the only way we can be committed is we must know it first. We must know what Jesus tells us to do. We must dig in, we must read, we must be committed. That's in our relationship with God. These are our simple works that we can do to show that we have a relationship with God. Now, on top of that, there's our relationship to others. I want to ask you, how do you talk to people? Do you condescend people? Do you raise your voice at people? Do you slander? Do you gossip? Do you backbite? How do you talk to people? If I've ever done your wedding in here, right? I've done a lot of weddings. If I've done your wedding, there's a common thing that I say in all weddings that I do. I, say, I give people advice and I say, learn to speak kindly to each other. Speak kindly to each other. If people would speak kindly to each other, the majority of our problems would go away. How do we speak to each other? Do we forgive other people? Even when they haven't asked for it, do we forgive them in our heart? Do you know what the Bible says about hearing prayer? Thank you. Oh, thank you. Never had that happen before. Um, do, we, do we forgive other people? Do we, when they not even ask for it, give forgiveness? Now, here's the thing. We often hear people say, God always listens to our prayers, and that's actually not biblically accurate. 
Actually, Jesus was talking about the fact that if you have beef with other people, right, if you have issues, if you have offenses with other people and you have not resolved those things, God says, hey, before you bring your offerings to me, deal with, with this problem with each other. Deal with this before you come to me. So have we forgiven people? Maybe the reason why some of our prayers are not listened to and they're not coming to fruition is because we haven't resolved some issues amongst ourselves. Do we forgive? Do we serve our community? Guys, I'm gonna be really mean for a second. Let me, let me say the next two and then I'll be mean, hold on. Do we serve our community and do we financially help churches and nonprofits? Again, there goes that pastor looking for money, right? I don't know if you give it this church. I don't ever wanna know if you give it this church. I don't look at the tithing records. But listen, if you don't like the homelessness in our community, you have to give to the different organizations that help with that problem. If you don't like abortion, you need to give to, to organizations like Portico, which our church gives a significant amount of money, to organizations like Portico. If you don't want that issue to continue, we have to do something about it. Just knowing that it's a problem does not fix it. Let me give you an example. I got a little bit of time. And this is where my wife said she held her breath last night because she didn't like this story. So about a year and a half ago, I remember, uh, man, it might've been two years ago. You guys remember the yes on one thing, right? Every church in town had pink things in their, in their lawn, yes on one. Everyone talked about yes on one. It was this law that was gonna be passed that people have to go through an ultrasound before they get an abortion. It's a, it's a good law. I agree with it, right? I voted for it. And all these, these churches, yes on one, and it was a big political thing, and yes on one this, yes on one that. And that's all fine and good. Except for the fact that when I got to the Portico fundraiser, which is the pregnancy support center here in Murfreesboro, right? When I went to the Portico fundraiser that I go to every single year, I noticed that there was only one church in our community that was represented besides ours. So here's the thing. Everyone's against abortion until we're asked to grab our wallets and contribute to the organizations that help deal with that issue. And so shame on all the churches in this town when they put all those signs in their front yard, but when it came time for them to donate to buy a mobile ultrasound unit that gives women free ultrasounds because 80% of the time, if they get that, they will not have an abortion. No church has stepped up to the plate. There's a problem with us. We can say all day long that we're against said evil, right? But if we're not willing to serve and if we're not willing to reach into our pocketbooks and help, shut up. I don't wanna hear it. To just identify the problem does not solve the problem. In fact, I would say you become part of the problem. More people complaining and no one doing anything about it. Are we merciful? Are we judgmental? Do we treat people with biblical love? Guys, we don't even know what the word love means anymore. That's why I put biblical love. We don't even know what love means. Whenever people say, God is love, God, dude, don't tell me. You don't even know what love is. Tell me the scripture that defines love. There's discipline in love. Sometimes there's even punishment in love. Jesus says, I discipline you because I love you. It's not loving my children if I let them run wild. That is not love. Do we biblically love people? Do we, do we address sin? Do we talk to people? Do we, do we passionately get into people's lives and try to help them and try to pull them up to the next level? Do we sacrifice our time? Do we biblically love the world around us? Guys, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be a jerk today. That's, that's not my goal. That's not my objective. And when James wrote this book of the Bible, he wasn't trying to be a jerk. That wasn't his goal, that wasn't his objective. James was the leader of the biggest church in his time. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, this 
huge, massive group of Christians in Jerusalem. That's who James was in charge of when he wrote this book. You know, James was violently bludgeoned for his faith, violently beaten to death for his faith. And he threw it all out there, and he was passionate, and he was fiery, not because he hated the people he was writing to, but because he loved them, and because he loved the people around him, and he wanted to see God infiltrate their hearts. He wanted to see God infiltrate their hearts, fill them up with the Spirit so they can go out and love other people, so God will infiltrate their hearts and fill them up with His Spirit, so they can go out, and on and on it goes. So my goal here is not to make you feel bad. It's not to put down other churches, and maybe I shouldn't have told that story. But it's not to do that. That's, that's not my goal. But my goal is, is, is iron sharpens iron. And when iron sharpens iron, there are sparks, and there is friction, and there is heat. But at the end of it, we are better. We are better than what we were. That's my hope for me. It's my hope for you. you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you're in this room as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, and, and maybe you haven't been faithful in prayer, maybe you haven't read the Bible the way you should, maybe you haven't been at church the way you should, there's a very simple remedy to that. Just, just do those things. Make it a priority. Put it on your calendar. Make it an appointment that you're not allowed to miss. You just have to step up and do those things. If you were in here and maybe you haven't treated other people the way you should, here's what I recommend you do. If maybe you've offended someone, call that person and ask for their forgiveness. If someone's forgiven or if someone has offended you, forgive them. Try to have a conversation with them. And if they're unwilling to have a conversation, forgive them anyways, even if they didn't ask for it. Learn to look at people the way Jesus looks at people. And if we're going to do that, we have to ask God to fill us up with his spirit. Because if we're not full of his spirit, we're not going to be able to look at people the way we should. We're not going to be able to love people the way we should. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, I hope you just felt comfortable today. I hope you felt welcomed. I hope you heard something that maybe sparked an interest in you. If you have any questions, I hope you email us or let us know or drop by sometime during the week or something. If you're in here and you need prayer for anything, there are people up here on the, on the right and left, elders of our church, wonderful people in our church that will pray for you. If you have any prayer requests, anything that you need, they're here for you. If you ask God to forgive you of your sins, there's communion all the way around you, represents the body and blood of Jesus. You're welcome to take that. And let's keep pushing forward, guys. Let's be sharpened. Let's be diligent. Let's be faithful. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's serve and let's work and let's give. Not to earn our salvation, but to respond to our salvation. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Forgive me, God, that I've been rude today. Forgive me, God, that I've been, that I've been judgmental, Father. Forgive me, God, that I've, I've, looked at other people and other organizations and, and judged them unfairly, God. I love you, Lord, and your grace is so thick, God, and it's been, a, it's been a bottomless ocean in my life, God. 
I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room who's struggling, who's fighting, who's maybe become lackadaisical or apathetic. Help us. Lord, if you've saved us, God, Lord, let the works flow out of us. Jesus, we love you so much, God. We praise you. We lift you up. Be gracious with us, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys so much. Love you guys. I hope you have a great week.